few places invoke a feeling of fear and dread in the world like swamps. Swamps are inhabited by all manner of creature. And here in America, our swamps have alligators and poisonous snakes, dangerous insects, and even the land itself can can grab you and you'll never come back out again. And because of that, there are stories that spawn out of the swamplands across our country. And we decided this week we were going to focus on tales from the swamps of the South, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, because there's just there's just so rife with folklore and, and, and creatures and, and stories that are, they just boggle the mind. So tonight we're going to discuss Southern Swamp Stories. Let's dive in. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So I've been to New Orleans. I went there. Uh, my brother-in-law paid for us to go on a cruise, and I got to drive to New Orleans. And I don't know if you've ever been to New Orleans. We have had it on our bucket list, and I swear every year we're going to do it, and we never quite make it. So to get to New Orleans, obviously, you have to drive through swampland. And there's places where it's like the road is elevated above the swamps around you, and you just see swamp. Just as far as you can see in the little... You see the little shacks, like you'd imagine you'd see, you know, these swamp dwellers. Fishermen shacks and stuff. And it's kind of weird because, like, really, you, you don't know where you're going to. It's it's almost like being in the desert. You don't know where you're going to pull off because you don't know where the pull-offs are. And it's almost like another, and I don't mean this to sound degrading, but it's almost like another country. It's like you could almost envision that in the river of the Nile or some swamp areas over in another continent. Well, and I hate to say it. If you get down there and you listen to the some of the, the Cajun accents, oh. my wife carried on a conversation with a gentleman that uh, I could not understand, to be frank with you. And, you know, I thought I did pretty good. I watch Swamp People, and I don't need the subtitles. I watch Swamp People. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was really interesting to be down there and, and to see that. Because, you know, Missouri, we have some swampland. Sure. But nothing like what they have down there. And then, of course, you go to Florida, and you've got the Everglades and things like that. I, I haven't been down there. I've been through those areas, you know, but. We've drove down through those areas and literally saw the alligators, I mean, waiting on alligators to cross the road, the <laughs> highways. And it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. But yeah, it's, you know, when you, when you think of the swamps, I mean, when you're growing up, when you're a kid, you, you have these, these, what was it? I, I saw a quote just the other day when I was growing up, I always thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem. <laughs> you think it's just everywhere, but it's like the same with swamps. You think you're just going to stumble across a swamp and then you're going to have to deal with alligators and things. Uh, and you know, you go watched movies about, you know, swap monsters and things, things like that. Things that go bump in the dark definitely are closer to the swamp, I think. There's a lot of interesting stories that come out of these, these marshy, swampy places in the world. And especially here in America, like I said, we, we decided we were going to talk about Southern Swamp stories. I'm going to start here with a couple of creatures from the Southern Swamp. And again, I've said this before, I've said it, I'll say it again. I'm the monster guy. Most of my stories ended up being about creatures. But the first one I have here is the Altamahaha. Love the name. 
Yeah, it, it resides near the mouth of the Altamaha River in southeastern Georgia, and it is a hissing sea monster known as Alti for short, said to have a surgeon-like body with a bony ridge on its top, front flippers and no back limbs, swims like a dolphin, has the snout of a crocodile with large protruding eyes, large sharp teeth, and gray or green in color with a whitish-yellow be- underbelly, which still kind of sounds alligator-ish to me. Kind of sounds like a gar, like we well, used to catch big river gar. At least it had a body like a sturgeon, so similar. Yeah. But it's 20 to 30 feet long. Wow. Uh, some reports do report uh, smaller creatures, though. Now, the Ultima Haha, or Haha, I, I really, I don't know ha-ha. how that's supposed to roll off the tongue. <laughs> it predates colonization and is said to have originated with the lower Muscogee tribe of the area. The first non-native report happened on April 18th, 1830. A reporter with the Savannah, Georgia newspaper reported multiple sightings of a sea monster on the Georgia coast. Uh, the primary witness was Captain Delano of the schooner Eagle, and he reported seeing the creature off St. Simon's Island below the mouth of the river, described it as 70 feet long, big around as a barrel with an alligator's head. Big around as a barrel. Wow. Now, I keep saying sea monster, but, you know, where that river lets out to the sea, you know, when, when rivers go out to the sea, there's a lot of little tributaries and they mm-hmm. tr- branch off. There have been a lot of sightings of the Altamaha in the swamplands of the area as well. It swims up and down the rivers and into the swampy, marshy areas. So that's kind of an area where the salt water and the fresh water mix. And... Yeah. Okay. In the 1920s, timbermen riding the river reported seeing a snake-like creature of gigantic size, which I can't imagine you'd feel safe at all standing on a floating raft of logs with a giant snake or something in the water. 20 to 30 foot long, just kind of swimming yeah. by. In 1935, groups of hunters spotted a giant snake-like creature swimming in the river. Again, that snake-like shape is being attributed. Uh, 1969, two brothers fishing on the river reported seeing the creature. They thought it was a sturgeon at first. Again, the sturgeon-like body we talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, They changed their mind when they got a good look at it, though. And, And obviously, they got the heck out of Dodge when they figured out that what they were seeing wasn't a sturgeon. And I don't know if sturgeon are common in that area. I know they're more common up north. Yeah, I know. So. Um, I've got cousins and stuff that fish for them, you know, up around the you know, Canadian border and stuff, Minnesota, that, you, that vicinity. Have you seen one? Have you seen like a video? Oh, they are creepy looking. They look, I mean, straight out of prehistoric dinosaur times for sure. Like I said, then around here we have more commonly what's known as a gar, which I think has to be a cousin related, you know, a very long slender body, but has the... Uh, you know, the jaws and the extended beak, if you will, of like yeah. an alligator or whatever. No, the sturgeon is, yeah, like you said, it's like this giant armor-plated fish. There's It's dinosaurish. Yeah, there's no way it didn't exist when the dinosaurs it, you were You got alive. that right, yeah. Uh, the, the latest sighting I have here is the summer of 1980. Two men spotted the creature stranded on a mud bank near Cathead Creek. Like that name. Cathead Creek. Uh, the creature was halfway in the water, thrashing about, trying to free itself from the mud. Here they described it as being 20 feet long. Uh, it did manage to free itself, submerge, and swim away into the, the deeper waters. But, you know, you have sort of a, a typical, you know, sea serpent type creature. But again, like I said, it swims up into those tributaries. It gets up into the swampy parts of the the, the area there. And people have seen it just all over the place. Now, moving right along. When I found this one, I, I immediately said, okay, this is a creature I've got to look into. I found the Parlangua. I love all these French names. Well, if you're not familiar with the Parlangua, if you've never heard of it, I hope that you find it as interesting as I did. This is a half-man, half-alligator creature that is said to stalk the swamps of Louisiana. That's straight out of Marvel and Spider-Man. Yeah, this is like, 
<laughs> well, I wouldn't even compare it to Killer Croc. This is far more alligator. Like this is almost oh. like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. <laughs> this is like an alligator man. We got a full crossover here, folks. Uh, it preys upon people and animals at night and is capable of emitting a loud roar that tears through the swamps. And I know if you uh, if you've seen alligators roar, it's not really a roar. They're a rumble where it shakes the whole water and all that where they're at. I mean, they, pretty intimidating. Alligators can be pretty, pretty loud. Pretty intimidating. So you imagine this half-human things tromping around. It could probably get pretty loud. Now, supposedly it can climb trees, and legends of the Parlongua go back as far as the 1960s, which you think you'd go back further, but it started in Rapides Parish, where allegedly a car was pulled out of the bayou and the driver was found half-eaten. And then since then, reports have surfaced all over Louisiana of this creature eating dogs and livestock and even people. Ew. Now, there are multiple origin stories for the beast. One story tells of the couple that drove off the bridge, you know, the, the car being pulled out of the swamp, during a foggy night in the 60s, they became trapped in their vehicle and were devoured by alligators. One of the alligators happened to be pregnant. And when the, egg, when the eggs hatched, somehow one came out different. I don't know much about I biology. Have, I have never heard that kind of twist to biology. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I haven't heard much about, I don't, I'm not a biology expert by any means, but I don't think it works like that. I don't think so. But it, but it was born a humanoid alligator and, was, and it grew into a ravenous monster. Now, another tale... Tales of a circus freak that escaped and fled into the swamp. Those pesky circus freaks. She lived there, hunting and foraging to survive, eventually losing her mind in her isolation and going insane. And, and in her madness, she mated with a large alligator and became pregnant. Okay. Now, again, I'm no a biology expert by any means. Yeah, yeah. I could definitely see, uh, I mean, living out in the swamps, trying to survive, going into madness. Uh, maybe got some mushrooms or something <laughs> she found in the swamp. Uh, the creature she gave birth to was half alligator, half man, and devoured its mother at birth. And I like and that he, twist. That's a know, nice horror kind story. Of a Jersey Devil-esque yeah. kind of. Now, the Parlongua could also be the result of a biological mishap. Chemicals from a human egg harvesting facility were poured into the Red River that eventually drained and pooled around a nest of alligator eggs resulting in one egg hatching into a half-human abomination. Now, I've never heard of human egg harvesting facilities. I'm like, this is straight out of sci-fi. Yeah. But uh, I, I know less about that topic, so I'm going to go with that one as probably the <laughs> most truthful one because but, but ignorance is bliss. None of the origins seem very convincing, but the idea of a huge half-alligator, half-human creature that, that's, tromping through the swamp. Because yeah. honestly, to be perfect, I was looking for a story like that. When I started doing the research for this episode, I wanted a, a weird killer alligator mutant. Cause, That's straight out of nightmares. Yeah. But, you know, there's so many creature stories from the region. That, that's just a couple of them. I think you've got, you, you're going to touch on one here. Yeah, I'm going to go back to one of the classics. I mean, if, if you talk about down south and swamp monsters, um, I think most people have heard of the Honey Island Swamp Monster. I see, I, I, I avoided that one. I don't know why, but that was just one I was like, you know what? I'm not going to talk about the Honey Island Swamp Monster. <laughs> That's because I stole it, Bill. You, I must have known that. <laughs> the Honey Island Swamp Monster, also known as the Cajun Sasquatch, and in Cajun French, and I will butcher this, I guarantee you, is La Bête Neor, I believe, maybe possibly how you good. pronounce it. Uh, it's an ape-like humanoid cryptid creature, similar to descriptions of Bigfoot. Preparated to uh, inhabit the Honey Island Swamp in Sant, I believe it's called Tamanay Parish in Louisiana. 
thus why it's got adopted. You know, it's not just a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. We call it the Honey Island because of that's the swamp area that it uh, has basically been sighted at. It's become part of Louisiana folklore for sure, with many swamp tour companies in the area capitalizing on the alleged existence, which is considered, ask any scientist, as most likely false. Now, however, this is our podcast, and it's Nightmares on the Lost Highway, so we're going to dive right into this. The creature is commonly described by alleged witnesses as a large bipedal human, about seven foot, a little over seven foot sometimes, covered with gray hair, a little bit different than the normal uh, brown or, or black hair. Well, that might blend in better with the, the, with the swamp. The swamp the, I'm the thinking the Spanish moss. moss. Yeah, the Spanish moss hanging out of the tree, so, you know, pretty adept at camouflage. Now, this particular version also seems to have glowing yellow or sometimes red eyes, and it does have that accompaniment of that putrid odor that, you know, we've talked about on the podcast with many Sasquatches and Bigfoots uh, having. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm just thinking if you're wandering around out in the swamps and you don't take baths regularly, you're probably going to have a little putrid odor. So, you know, I'll just put that out there. But not being a swamp dweller myself, I assume there are probably parts of the swamp that smell pretty foul naturally. I, so. I would think so. I, <laughs> I think there's actually areas down there that, uh, you know, have like sulfur springs and different things. I mean, nasty, nasty. Other local names for the creature includes Arugaru. Uh, actually, you mentioned, you had mentioned earlier swamp people. And uh, actually, the Rougarou is mentioned several times. Now, my understanding is the Rougarou was a different kind of creature, almost a lycanthrope, like a werewolf. It can be, but if you dive into those lores, you'll find the Rougarou is a whole deck of cards of things that it could be. Uh, it's but, just kind of a catch-all. But yeah, it's a catch-all kind of a title. But yeah, werewolf-like, uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch-like. Uh, just, a, I think, loosely, it just means like a killer, killer of men. Uh, but anyhow, the also I loved this one, the Louisiana Wookiee. <laughs> for those Star Wars fans out there. I bet that name came about in the 70s. I, I'm going to go out on a limb, so yeah, probably late 70s. Also, The Thing, just simply The Thing. Oh no, The Thing is an entirely different monster. But I think that was copyrighted by Marvel, so you know Disney's now pretty well shut that down. Well, I was, I was thinking like John Carpenter's The Thing. That'd oh, be a whole different. That's totally, yeah, totally, totally different. Now, plaster casts of footprints have said to... Uh, been captured of the creature or creatures, as the case may be, depending on what your beliefs are, showcase four toes, not a natural trait found in primates uh, who possess five, and obviously not something most Sasquatch and Bigfoot uh, hunters find in most of the uh, casts that you see will have all five toes. But nope, our little Honey Island Swamp Monster, not only being covered in gray fur, but uh, he seems to have only four toes. Now, claims of its existence are generally, like I said, not considered credible. It's usually this guy I knew, knew a guy, and that guy told me the story, you know, kind of deal. However, we do have a few, I think, that's more valid uh, appearances, documentation, and anecdotes that I thought are worth mentioning. The first claim sighting was actually back in 1963 by a Harland Ford. Uh, he was a retired air traffic controller who'd taken up wildlife photography as kind of a hobby and a pastime. Now, after uh, Mr. Ford's death in 1980, a reel of Super 8 films showed up. And if you're into Monsters, Bill, I'm sure you saw this, but if you're a cryptid person, you've probably saw footage of the Super 8, maybe not realized exactly what it was. It is grainy, as most, especially, you know, back in the 60s. But Mr. Harlan Ford had 
put himself up, for lack of a better term, kind of some deer stands up in some of the trees. And again, he's out there trying to capture photography of wildlife of the swamp. So he had kind of a camo blind where hopefully he wouldn't be spotted, but he could just kind of take pictures and observe. Well, they had found documentation after his death, not only of the Super 8 reel, but also he had passed down some letters and kind of kept a diary of sorts. And so they were able to link these two together. And apparently what the man saw that day changed his life forever. I think I've heard of this. I don't know that I've seen it. It is not the best footage. And again, it is very easy for skeptics to, you know, throw it aside. And so that's just some guy in an ape suit walking through, you know, like what we've heard so many times. But uh, from the aerial perspective of this deer blind, deer stand, you know, you're, you're looking down at probably about a 40 degree angle. And there, there is some uh, underbrush that this creature appears. And, of course, he mentions in his diary and his notes that he hears like a, a branch. It's not twigs. It's a branch on like a tree that maybe he was leaning on and snapped the limb off. Uh, so that's what kind of causes him to turn. And in the video, you can see it's kind of shaky. He turns around. It's almost like he's looking behind him. So he's kind of trying to film behind the tree. And then you notice, again, it's black and white, so you can't tell that it's gray. But uh, this creature, shaggy looking, covered, I mean, literally from head to toe. But you're only able to see at first kind of the upper torso. And it just looks like he's taking a stroll through the swamp in the woods. And then it's like he kind of stops and I'm going to go out and, and kind of ad lib here, but like maybe he got a scent, tilts his head just a little bit. Maybe the wind had carried uh, Mr. Ford's scent to him. And so he just kind of stops and freezes. And that's the maybe a two second pause that you can actually see some detail. And then when he starts moving again, it's behind limbs and branches and it's blurry. And then he doesn't hang around very long. The whole footage is, I want to say maybe 20 seconds. But uh, definitely, I mean, he saw something. Uh, well, our, our most credible piece of video evidence is only, what, 18 seconds or something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so, right up know, there. You got the Patterson-Gimlin film, which so many people, disprove. Yeah, so many people have said it's a false. Other people, I mean, they stand by and said this is absolutely, you know, definitive. But when he saw this, it, it changed his life forever. He wrote there in his journal, diary, and in notes. He didn't share this with a lot of people because... He was afraid of being ridiculed and, um, you know, he wanted, he was kind of one of those gentlemen. He's like, okay, I saw it. I know it exists. Now the rest of my life ambition is to prove to everyone else it exists before I come public with it. So it wasn't like one of those things that, you know, you go to the coffee cafe the very next morning, Hey, you'll never guess what I saw, you know, kind of deal. He kept it pretty much, you know, under the rug. He did tell a, a few close friends that later came forward, and in particular, his daughter. He did share some stories with later on. Now, in 1974, uh, 11 years later, Ford and his friend Billy Mills, uh, still out there, still trying to gain information, still trying to get proof, claimed that they had actually found some unusual footprints in the area, as well as the body of a wild boar whose throat had been gashed, and he said tore apart. Now, again, you're thinking, okay, well, a boar maybe went down to the swamp to get a drink and, you know, maybe fell victim to an alligator. Could be. Um, it did not look like it was cut with a knife or anything. It was more ravenous. It was ripped. You know, a chunk was taken out. I thought it was odd that going back 11 years, there was no mentions of any footprints in that early Super 8 video. But 
it's taken him 11 years to find footprints to make a casting. Well, it's the swamp. Yes. So, I mean, I, I can forgive the lack of footprints in that respect. And, and I dove in a little bit to that. I'm like, come on, it's swamp. It's got to be muddy. Well, it is, but the problem with the swamp is it's ever-changing. The, the water levels change. Well, there's a lot of say, grasses. and Yeah, so, I mean, it's not like this perfect, smooth, muddy bank that's moist that if you, you, know, you, know, you put your toe into it, it makes a perfect print. It's actually quite the difference. So. so, anyhow, now we have him, you know, 11 years later, he and his friend uh, Billy Mills, who is one of the ones that later came forward that he had shared some of the stories with, came across with that. Now, today, the creature's still uh, reported to inhabit the swamp and the bayous along the Pearl River, that same vicinity. Uh, local lore tells of a train crash that occurred near the swamp in the early 20th century, in which a traveling circus, here we go, these crazy carnies <laughs> again, they lost some chimpanzees uh, who adapted to the environment and offer a potential explanation to the creature's origins. Now, this was taken right out of a newspaper. Do you know what my problem is with that, Bill? Well, chimpanzees aren't very big. Well, they're definitely not very big. And it says in the latter part of the 20th century, okay, the date, there was no date for sure. Uh, we're going all the way back to 63 when he saw them and, and he described a bipedal human size. So yeah, it, this, it, okay, it, it's interesting. Don't get me wrong, but this did not I mean, equate to the other. I was going to say, chimps are like, what, four foot? Four foot tall. Yeah. So like maybe five foot for a big one. And not that they don't walk upright, well, but they gotta, definitely don't walk like they don't a walk human. walk like people do. Yeah. They have yeah. that weird waddling. Yeah. Kinda. Almost kind of dragging their rear along on the ground as they're trying to make their way. But uh, again, I thought that was interesting, but I don't think that's, uh, you know, uh, it solves everything. Now, Ford did appear in a 1970s television series. Now, this was um, after they had found or right about that same time frame that they had found the footprints, so 74. So I'm guessing this show would have been about 1974, 1975. The series was called In Search Of, and described an unkept behemoth over seven feet tall, again, not not very chimpanzee-like, <laughs> with scraggly uh, black hair covering its bodies. Now, before I had mentioned gray, and again, I said in the footage, it's black and white, so it's hard to tell. But here he does use the words black hair covering its body from head to toe, and piercing amber eyes looking out from a surprisingly human-like face. And he said the face itself did not have, you know, a lot of hair. I'm assuming mustache and beard, but, like, you know, like the nose was a human's nose, the, the brow, yeah. the cheeks and stuff. When I think of, of Bigfoot and the way they're going to look, I've always sort of compared it to that of Gorilla. Yeah, The hands don't have a lot of hair on them. The feet, the face doesn't have a lot of hair on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't even, there's like no facial hair on a gorilla. Yeah, there's, a, for lack of a better term, a beard or yeah. anything like that. I've always imagined, I always imagined they would look like that if we found them. He did, he stressed this surprisingly human-like face, which I thought was very creepy. Again, if you're out in the swamp and you're talking about scary swamp tales, you see that. And he said, I did at first think it could have been a bear, possibly a little mangy. But Ford said along with the physical descriptions, uh, he produced the plaster cast of the impression of the creature's four-toed, web-footed footprints. Now, this is the first time we I come across with a web-footing. So now we're like, what breed of animal or animals is this? Well, maybe it's an adaptation to living in the swamp. Maybe so. You got to swim every now and then, I guess. No, it's kind of a primate, human, large alligator kind of creature. 
Now, I think the most unique detail of the whole cryptid swamp creature is not uh, like that it's similar to Sasquatch or Bigfoot or a werewolf, but it, that webbed feet aspect, that, uh, that sets it apart in my mind from these other creatures. Uh, the myth of the chimpanzees mating with an alligator. Uh, I don't know. We talked about <laughs> genetics, you know, here a little earlier. I don't, I don't think it works like that. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Now, kids, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but scientific genetics, I just don't think work that way. Okay. I'm going to say this. And I, and I mean. Please say it. We're sitting here talking about, like, the science and genetics of a chimpanzee. And we are experts, of course. Um, Not. While at the same time talking about mutant alligator men and giant hairy uh, beasts of the swamp. Bipedal beasts, yes. I mean, I think maybe we gotta we we gotta pick a lane, right? We're we're straddling <laughs> that fence hard. You know, still, what else could this be? You know, possibly a forgotten creature thought to be extinct, or a creature like the Frogman that we did a podcast on. Uh, possibly, maybe from another planet, uh, or even you know, like an alien uh, intelligence. Regardless, I, it's definitely an interesting story and. The Honey Island Swamp Monster, I don't think we can chunk up to a chimpanzee. I don't think we could chuck it up to a normal Bigfoot or Sasquatch or a werewolf or, you know, any of those kinds. It, it definitely is standing in, in the swamp by itself. Or, or maybe not. Maybe not. See, when I started to sit down to do my research on this, there was one creature for sure that I was wanting to talk about, which was the skunk ape. And the skunk ape is a humanoid, a great shaggy with. humanoid sighted in the swamps of the south. Now, I believe the skunk ape is more commonly associated with Florida and the Everglades. Yeah. But, you know, it is a, a southern swamp story. Sure. You know, sc- stories of skunk apes go back as far as Europeans settling the region. One story from 1818 claimed uh, a man-sized monkey was raiding food stores and stalking fishermen along the shore in the region. <laughs> so, so, again, you have this, this description already. Uh, the Seminole and the Miccosukee culture include tales of a foul-smelling, physically powerful, secretive creature they called Esti Kapkaki, which sounds like a horrible word, really, when you read it. <laughs> and it roughly translates to furry tall man or hairy giant. There you go. Now, we separate the skunk ape from normal, you know, what we call Bigfoot Sasquatch, due to its range being in the swamps, usually in Florida. It also has sort of a different appearance than your, your normal Sasquatch, Bigfoot, what have you. One, you know, the, the the main thing that sets it apart is usually accompanied by horrific stench, hence the name Skunk, skunk Ape. Ape. Yeah, sure. Uh, they tend to have a more heavy set build than Sasquatch, kind of a bulkier... Uh, Gorilla-type yeah. build. Uh, some have oversized heads that are more monster than ape-like. Fur coloring usually uh, a black or deep brown. Some may have a tail, it has been reported. Uh, when they do, it is bushy like that of a wolf or a fox, which I thought was kind of weird. Some are large. Some stories say up to 10 feet tall, but most skunk ape sightings are more of a normal human six-foot range. So they're not really giant giants. Not gargantuan ones, yeah. And, and often the footprints usually only have three toes. Three toes. So, so we have five, we have four, now we have three. Now skunk apes are usually very aggressive towards dogs and are said to be carnivorous. They're commonly associated with livestock deaths in the area. Uh, especially that of smaller animals such as chickens and goats, you know, something I guess it's easy to grab and kill easy and walk prey. away with. Now, some of the most famous evidence of the skunk ape, which you may be familiar with this, are the Miyaka skunk ape photographs. I don't know if you've ever seen those. I might recognize them if I saw them. So back in 2000, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office received two anonymous photographs. They show a large, hairy, ape-like creature. To me, it looks very much like an orangutan-type 
type animal. Uh, it was a very dark, almost black fur with like lighter fur under the mouth, almost like a highlight, like a white. It seems to be hiding in some some underbrush. We something with like fronds, like the pokey, pointy leaves of of like you mm-hmm. know some swamp plant. Yeah, yeah. And really, is I remember when I first saw the Miyaka skunk ape photographs, I was I was immediately enthralled. Here's photographic evidence of a big hairy beast, and um, it's hard to judge scale. They're they're taken at night. It's very dark. I don't know how big the plants around the creature are, so I don't know how to scale the is creature. Is it the size at all. of a spider monkey, or is it the so, size of a gorilla? But it definitely fits that description of a skunk ape. You know, it, it looks like a heavy, heavily built creature. I believe it's got its mouth open, and it definitely has a mouthful of teeth with big canines pronounced. Hmm. Uh, it, it looks it looks like it could be a fierce fierce critter. Uh, now, a letter included with the photos claimed they were sent by an elderly woman who had been having apples stolen off of her porch. And she heard noises one night and wanted to go see what was going on and snapped a couple of pictures of this this beast. Coming and stealing her apples. So, again, I wanted to talk about the skunk ape, and it sounds like, you know, the Honey Island creature and the skunk ape seem very similar. Possible distant cousins. And, you know, when we talk about the smell, the stench, you know, when we That seems to be very common with... uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, you know, well, the skunk ape. Missouri uh, tales, Momo is supposed Momo. to have a stench. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to drift away from these physical creatures and monsters, and I'm going to talk about something that just, when I saw the story, when I saw the, the name, when I do the research, usually what I do is I take whatever our topic is and I plug it into Google, and I do a Google search. Now, some of these stories, you know, I know. Some of these stories are personal stories. I don't have to do a Google search. But... And some of the stories I'm familiar with, but I got to get my details straight. You know, right. when we... And I'll add in there some of the stories, because I do similar, I knew, but I forgot I knew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like I need that gentle reminder. So I think what I started out with was like Southern Swamp stories, and then I did like Southern Swamp creatures, Southern Swamp, this, that, and the other. And one of the websites, one of the, the hits I had was the Ghost Ship of the Everglades. Ghost Ship? Now, the Everglades. my thought is you don't have a lot of ships sailing the Everglades. You no. have the big fan boats, but that's about it. Yeah. I mean, there can be some deep water in the swamp, but generally speaking, it's probably not much more yeah. than six feet deep or so. So I decided I wanted to read a little more into the ghost ship of the Everglades. Got my attention. So in the 1600s, the waters around Florida were a wild and pirate-ridden place. Now, obviously, this was before you know America existed and all that. So, I mean, these were these were a little bit less civilized times, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, whether you would consider America civilized or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Still up to a debate. But the story goes, on one particularly stormy day, a merchant ship was pursued by pirates around the Keys, the little series of islands down there below the, the tip of Florida. And they evaded them. They evaded them. I mean, they were constantly in pursuit. It was like an all-day thing. And this, these pirates knew there was plunder there. They were going to secure this merchant ship. And the longer this drug out, the madder the pirate captain got, the more frustrated he became, the more frustrated his crew became. Right. They wanted, you know, to claim their prize and be done with it. I mean, I believe piracy, the whole point is supposed to be that it's fairly easy work. You don't work for, you know, you, you take you from other people. You don't work this hard to be a pirate. So when the pirate crew finally overcame the merchant vessel, they were just angry, I guess would be the best way to put it. They are frustrated. They were upset. They were, you know, this, this should have been done long time ago, and instead they, they pursued this ship all day long. So they were not friendly when they captured the vessel, finally. And the merchant crew prayed for mercy, uh, and the pirates showed them none. Again, they were just so upset with, with the whole pursuit taking all day the way it did. 
and the captain was so angry that, that someone had outmaneuvered him that he was he was not going to show this crew any mercy. <laughs> and so he sentenced the entire crew to death, and he forced the captain's wife to watch as each man, and finally her husband, was forced to walk the plank. As, as she watched this, as her husband took that final step and plunged into the ocean below, she fell to the deck wailing in despair, and she cursed these pirates. No one knows ultimately what fate befell the captain's wife, but the pirates, they fell victim to her curse. Ooh. Now, as they had done away with all the bodies and took all the plundered goods, and they set sail, a more powerful storm than they had seen all day long came rolling out of the ocean. And, and again, if you've been on, at sea, storms on the ocean are very, very powerful. And they can pop up just within a few moments. The winds were very, very severe. They became, they can, they, the winds blew harder and harder as the storm got closer and closer. And finally, a massive wave rolled up out of the ocean, overtook the pirate ship, and crushed it to bits in the middle of the Florida Everglades, miles away from shore, miles away from where they had plundered this merchant vessel. Now there, of course, the pirate crew became lost, and as per the merchant captain's wife's curse, condemned to sail the swampy waters for eternity, forever condemned to try to find a passage back to open ocean. And if they can, they'll sail away and finally be at peace. Nice twist. Now some, on especially dark nights, will claim to see a ghostly pirate ship on the horizon in the Everglades. And supposedly even the alligators will swim away when this ship is, is seen. Uh, natives of the area, hunters in the swamps, they claim to see this ship on a fairly regular basis. And again, now, I wonder when they see the ship, is it like moving in the water or is it after the wave had hit it and it's all damaged, like tip, well, tipped over almost like, you know, I, hung I in would, the swamp? I would say that it's probably in sail, sailing condition. Okay. I mean, it may be roughed up, but because of course the story is they're trying to f sail their way out of the swamp, which, you know, they're probably never going to make it. Never going to make it. Yeah. So I thought that was uh, an interesting story. That is. I like that one. All right, well, I have one. Um, I actually stumbled across this deep down into a rabbit hole. It was off of another podcast, and there was a gentleman that called in, and um, it was actually him telling the story. And rather than me trying to relate that back, his name was Trevor Lafayette. I am just going to read as if I am Trevor, as he did when he shared this. And it's called The Blue Fairy Lights on the Bayou. Now, we might... Dungeons and Dragons players uh, relate this to Will-O-Wisps. Now, I found stories, Cajun tradition, um, fufile would be another word mm -hmm. I think that the locals use. Yes. So, Trevor Lafayette, don't go out at night, my mama told me. They're going to take you away from me, like they did your daddy, and I won't have that. Trevor Lafayette was born and raised as a single child in the bayous of Louisiana. The family had a hard go of it. As a young boy, Trevor grew up with a father through his teenage years. His mother was a good woman, hardworking and an honest woman, but had no formal education, not even graduating from the sixth grade. She still did her best to support her young son, Trevor, and herself, doing odd jobs like repairing fishing nets for neighbors, working at a local cafe as a waitress and a cook at times. Trevor stated he was actually glad it was only the two of them. Because if he had siblings, he doubted there would have been enough to survive on, even with the welfare. Trevor says, I remember my father. He was also a good man. Hard worker, just like Mama. But I remember asking her, what happened to him? Why did he leave us? She would simply smile, change the subject, and avoid it with a good explanation each time. 
She had dropped out of high school becoming pregnant with me and shortly after marrying daddy. She was adamant that I complete my high school, unlike herself, and receive a diploma, which I did, even managing to get a part-time job flipping burgers to help pay for college. Later on in life, my mother was super pleased with my accomplishments. She told me so all the time. She said, I want more for you than we ever had. I want you to find a good woman to marry and give me lots of grandkids and a good job to be able to support your family like I never could. I assured Mama, we may not have much, but I always had enough. You made sure of that. Several years later, I moved back home after I finished graduating from college with top honors. During that time, I met and married the love of my life. After graduating and landing a good-paying job, we became pregnant, and we had a little boy of our own. A few years later, my wife would become pregnant with our second child. I kept tabs on Mama as she chose to remain in the marsh, but with my own family and job, it became, as you all know, harder and harder. Still, I tried to stop by at least weekly. Then I got that dreaded phone call one early morning. A neighbor had found Mama dead, apparently dying in her sleep. Since my wife had just delivered our second child, I decided I alone would return for the funeral, as to not add more grief and anguish and burden on my family. I walked up that same lane that I had hundreds of thousands of times and across the bridgeway to our old house that I knew so well. Took a few days to gather up what few belongings she had and met with the lawyer, where he updated me on the will and testament. She had left me the property in the house, really all she had. Along with that information, he handed me a yellowish envelope with a letter inside. After the lawyer left, I opened it and found my mama's writing on it, and it had my name, Trevor Lafayette, upon my death. It was sealed and apparently very old due to the age stains. That night, I decided to stay at the house. I was finishing up the last details and gathering personal belongings. I found myself finally staring at the envelope, and I opened it and read the letter in my mama's writing. Trevor, if you are reading this, then now I am at rest. I am gone from this world. Please know I am proud of you for your accomplishments, and I hopefully, now, know that you have a family of your own. I need to tell you about your father, to answer your questions that I dodged for so many years. The time has come, son. First off, your father and I were madly in love. He was such a good man. Never raised a hand to either of us and worked his fingers to the bone to support us as long as he was with us. But you, and no one else, really know the truth of what happened to him. He was reported missing, that is all the police records will state, but I know what happened to him, and it is why I never left. You see, one night when you were asleep, we were out back running some limb lines for catfish. Suddenly your father asked if I heard the voices, and then he pointed out to the swamp and said, See? See there? There are lights. Someone's in trouble and calling out for help. We gotta go. I, of course, followed him. And while I did not hear the voices, I did see some tiny blue lights that were fluttering about, about the size of a light bulb, but they hovered and moved very quickly. They seemed to have an unearthly power over him. He waded out into the water deeper and deeper, leaving me there in the boat, at first only to his knees, but then to his waist. I resisted and pleaded with him to stop, but you might remember how strong your father was. I could not pull him back. So I finally stopped, as if I knew, if I did nothing, we would both surely drown in the murky waters. I watched as he continued and sunk beneath the waters. I screamed and cried, but I was helpless. 
I managed to pull myself up out of the water using a fallen tree and then stood up on top of it regaining myself back to the boat. The blue glowing lights followed him beneath the water and I watched as they seemed to illuminate around him and lure him deeper and deeper to his death. As weeks passed, his body was never found, assumed to have been eaten by the alligators. But I started hearing his voice at night, my son, outside our bedroom window to be particular. He was calling out my name and seemed to be looking over us. And more importantly, I believe he was looking out for you, son. He wanted to make sure you were safe. That is why I could never leave. There was a part of him here in the swamp with me. Trevor, know that I love you, but never ever go into the swamp at night following the blue lights. They are known as Le Flot Le Flay, the strange fairy lights of the bayou. For a man especially, they seem to be alluring, but if you pursue, they will make your wife a widow. As these are evil spirits, they seem to thrive on that sort of thing. Trevor promised me, don't follow those blue lights. I love you, and be a good boy, and know that I am finally with your father once again. Tears ran down my cheek as I was not sure what to make of this letter, and why my mama would choose this of all times to tell me such a tale. So I did the only thing I could. I finished boxing up the papers and looking through the old photographs, peering up from time to time, almost expecting to hear her voice or to see her standing in the doorway. As bedtime approached, I noticed my phone was nearly dead, and I had left my charger in the car. I had forgotten. Mama had an old landline phone in her bedroom that was added after I moved out, which would come back to haunt me. I stepped out on the creaky front porch and made my way to the car, but before I made it, I heard thrashing in the water, and what sounded like a muffled cry for help. I thought surely a fisherman has overturned his boat in the swamp, and he was drowning. I raced down to the docks towards the thrashing water, using my cell phone as my only source of light. I thought I could see a john boat about 30 foot off the shore, and I could definitely hear the cries for help, and definitely the thrashing of water. I dialed 911, but in the panic mode I was in, I didn't think I had even enough reception to make the call. I then see three blue lights that I thought must have been some sort of lights the fisherman had rigged on his boat for fishing at night. Then my phone went totally dead. I had used the last of the battery power as a flashlight. I stood on the dock, calling out, with only a cloudy moon shining down for light now. I raced back to the car and grabbed my flashlight and noticed our little metal boat was there like in a carport next to the house. So I grabbed it quickly and drug it down to the water. I thought, time is of the essence, and if I didn't hurry, surely this poor soul would die, and I would be on my own. Is this, this again not listen to what his mom says? He is obviously in the moment, <laughs> Bill. Blue lights, don't go near the water, stay away from the swamp. Yeah. Yeah, we're checking all the boxes. <laughs> As I arrived, the three blue lights separated and moved. And I noticed there was no boat overturned. I had seen the shadow of a fallen log floating in the swamp. These lights seemed to be a burning flame, not like that of a light bulb or a firefly. The lights went under the water and began to circle my own little boat. I realized maybe these were the La Fleur Le Flay fairy lights Mama had written about. I became scared for the first time in the entire evening. There was a thud beneath my small boat and I seen a blue glow of light of what looked like a body floating just beneath the water with a pale yellow jacket on. 
I quickly reached out beneath the water and grabbed the body and pulled it up. I was somewhat shocked. It was a solid form. I struggled to roll the body into the boat, where I seen it was a man about my own age, dressed like me. The skin was blue-white, the best I could tell, with the flashlight bouncing around in my lap, falling into the floor of the boat. I started CPR. I had learned it in college on a man, and at one time, I heard the man in front of me cough, and at that moment I knew he was still with me. Thank God. Then there was a voice from the darkness. Trevor, Trevor, my boy. I recognized the voice, although I had not heard it in many years. It was Father. I stopped, stunned and shocked. Then from another direction, another familiar voice. It was Mama. Trevor, no! Run! Leave now! I grabbed for my paddle, but spotted it floating in the water, drifting away from my boat and just out of reach. I grabbed my flashlight from the floor of the boat and checked on the man. It was me. I was staring down at myself. It was my doppelganger. He had set up in the boat, and as I screamed, he fell backwards into the water with a splash, but not before his mouth opened with a sinister laugh and a toothy grin. I myself then started struggling with breathing. My hands, arms, and legs went numb. I began to cough up water. What was happening? The last thing I remember was falling out of the boat myself and the murky swamp water splashing up in my face. Then I passed out into total darkness. I awoke with bright lights in my face and voices. It was a police officer shining his flashlight into my face. He was drenched from apparently wading out to rescue me. Luckily, that 911 call I had made did go through, and it had dispatched help based on my GPS signal before my phone went dead just long enough and well enough before my phone totally died. I was whisked away into an ambulance, which I remember this spiralating lights and flashing off the trees and the swamp by the dock. I awoke the next day in the hospital. There my wife and my kids were in my room. I decided to sell the property and never return again. Another creepy story of the Louisiana swamps, but the southern tales. I thought Trevor did a pretty good job telling it himself, so just wanted to share that. Now, there's a another origin for the Fufile that I thought I, I, I liked. And when I was looking these up, I wrote this one down. Some say they guard lost pirate treasure, and the famous pirate Jean Lafitte would dig a hole, drop his treasure, and then kill a man and bury his body with the loot. And such slain men would come back as floating spirit lights. Ooh. And their whole purpose would be to lure would-be treasure seekers away from the treasure and get them lost in the swamp, never to be found again. Uh, every story you find of the little spirit lights, that's, that's sort of their whole deal. They're just supposed to lure people away, specifically uh, children in most, most instances, instances. You had mentioned the, uh, something that popped up about quicksand and how you thought it was going to be <laughs> such a bigger deal. Some of the earlier tales I remember reading as a kid was, you know, the will-o'-wisp would lure kids or, you know, maybe a teenage boy with a hunting dog out into the swamp and, you know, into quicksand or the murky bogs well, and, and they would drown. And we have spirit lights. I mean, it's, it's not a uniquely swamp, swampy true. phenomenon. True, true. You and I have, have on occasion tried to go find one of these. Yep. Uh, I would say with little luck. Yeah. I, I certainly never saw anything. Forever but. Joplin spook light. You know, it, it's it's an interesting story. Uh, and, and like I said, these, these little lights, and I know there's a tradition of them over in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, Ireland, 
Scotland. So, well, that's some people would say, especially when you get overseas, that that's the pixies, the fairies, you know. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed some of these creepy little, maybe little less known tales of down south swampish nightmares on the lost highway. Thanks for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravensloft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, final records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.